What's up, everybody? Nick Finzer here. I'm not going to do a long introduction today because this is a full-on interview with Chris Glassman and Gina Benalcazar, two great jazz bass trombonists, uh, on their podcast called 8V Bebop, and we are sharing the audio from that today. Uh, I hope you enjoy this. It's a really nice conversation I had with them. They're very insightful uh, young musicians, and it's always a pleasure to get to talk to them and uh, to connect and talk about jazz trombone. And uh, we also talk about music marketing and social media. So if you have any thoughts or questions about that, you know, hit me up. Uh, I do lots of talks about those sort of things. So hope you're having an amazing week and we'll catch you in the next episode. Hi guys, welcome to 8B Bebop co-hosted by myself, Gina Benakazar, and Chris Glassman. This week's special guest, we have Nick Finzer with us. Nick Finzer is one of the most dynamic musicians of the millennial generation, an award-winning composer, arranger, producer, educator, and trombonist. Finzer is bringing the joy and power of jazz to traditional fans and the most modern 21st century audiences. He's on a mission to be a passionate voice defining the sound of jazz in this age, while also bringing street cred to the trombone with a bold, tight sound. When away from NYC, Finzer can be found touring the globe, not only with his own projects, but as a part of Annette Cohen's Tented, teaching workshops, masterclasses, and appearing in with the YouTube sensation Postmodern Jukebox. Finzer has joined the group on television in viral videos with millions of views and on tours across North America, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. Mr. Finzer has performed at top jazz clubs, festivals, and concert halls with Wintmore Stouse's Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, the Newport Jazz Festival with Anat Cohen, Lucas Pino's No Net Nanet, Ryan Truesdell's Gila Evans Project, the Grammy Award-winning Daphnis Prieto's Big Band, Bob Stewart's Double Quartet, and many more. While not performing, he can be found on his YouTube channel, sharing weekly videos on topics ranging from live performances to new arrangements and educational videos. Nick's media company and jazz record label, Outside in Music, is poised to take the jazz recording industry firmly into the next century. Outside in Music produces audio and video content for some of jazz rising stars from around the globe, as well as connecting brands to the jazz artist's passionate fan bases. He also has a firm commitment to education and developing the next generation of musician and music lovers. 2018 saw Nick's appointment as the inaugural assistant professor of jazz trombone at the legendary University of North Texas, home of the very first degree in jazz studies. Finzer serves as an artistic director and co-founder of the Institute for Creative Music, a nonprofit dedicated to exploring improvisation and creativity for musicians and audiences of all levels. From 2014 to 2016, Nick served as a visiting professor of jazz trombone at Florida State University and published his first book in 2013, Get Ahead, a practical guide for the developing jazz trombonist, and relaunched that book as an interactive online course in June of 2017. Nick also curates an online virtual studio where students can engage with weekly video content to bring their playing to the next level. To read his full bio, View his discography and get in touch with Mr. Finzer. Be sure to go to his website, nickfinzer.com. And as you can see on the screen, we have his Instagram handle and uh, Facebook handle. So it's really easy to find him. Welcome. Hello, Mr. Finzer. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for that introduction. Oh. So kind. Of course. 
So what have you been up to during quarantine? Well, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> quick heads up. So everybody this week, uh, Chris is doing the stream from the car. So pardon if there's any weird like, like, yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah, your turn. There you go. What have you been up to? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> over the first two months of quarantine, we were still um, having classes online with UNT. So most of my time was spent doing doing that. And I was supposed to be on the road most of that time do, promoting a new record. But so that kind of got postponed and put off. So we kind of left that and ended up going with some more educational projects that I had. I had a could do. I had a um, Etude book that I published that I was waiting to publish, but then I figured everybody was home practicing, so I might as well publish it. So I uh, did that, and now now the last month or so I've been organizing a jazz trombone uh, event, educational event that's happening June 15th through 19th, um, like a little online camp kind of situation, and so I'm looking forward to that. That's coming up in two weeks. So basically just trying to keep myself busy and uh, try to figure out what's next it's as everyone is but uh and i've gotten back into running pretty hardcore and uh, so i've been trying to do that as much as possible amazing um so you are one of the most online present musicians and trombonist but musicians in general what drew you to like being so present and marketing online and all your virtual resources that you have for your students um i guess at a certain point I'm trying to remember exactly what the point was, but I can't remember an exact moment in time, but there was basically a point where I just, I got sick of hearing everybody around me complaining about um, like the starving artist and the like, I can't do anything because I have no money and I have no gigs and this kind of perpetual story of musicians. And I was like, I don't think that that's true. I think that we're not, fully capitalizing on all the resources that are out there for us. And that if we are just as creative with our marketing that as we are with our music, that we can um, cultivate an audience and allow us to like live a normal existence and do the things we want to do. And I still firmly believe that. And that's why I do the stuff that I do. And um, so it was sometime around the end of grad school where I was just like, you know what, I'm going to lean into the, all this stuff. There's not that much jazz trombone focused content online and uh i know it's very niche and not a lot of people are going to like just be searching for it or want it but for me i'm just like you know i'm just going to put out what i'm doing and uh if it finds an if and when it finds an audience we'll see what happens i would say that i started first dabbling in posting stuff in 2011 and i didn't really get serious about the channel till i quit that uh position at fsu in 2016 and then it started rolling and then from there really started to double down on it like this last year maybe or two years at the most and so it's been like a long gradual process of getting into it it wasn't necessarily like i wanted to do it but i just i see that that's where people are especially right now that you we can't get together so everybody's on their phone and on the computer and on the internet and if you aren't there you kind of don't exist you know if you don't give people the opportunity to find you um then how are they going to find you? And I think of some artists that I know very well, but then I mention them to my students. And because that artist maybe doesn't promote themselves or doesn't have someone promote them on the internet, that they don't have much of a presence with the next generation. So um, I find that 
that is going to be increasingly problematic, I think. And so um, anyway, that's why I encourage people that even if we don't want to be on these places, that it's important to have some kind of presence uh, in order to facilitate, you know, your career. So leading also into that, it, it's, it's pretty clear that you have a, a really, really high level of awareness of what, what, uh, what it takes to be a present and uh, relevant on social media. But I wanted to ask you, if this is something that you took classes on, did you study it anywhere? Or is this something you learned through trial and error? Or did you have a friend help you out? Just curious. Uh, lots of trial and error. I would still say I'm mostly error, you know, just like <laughs> slow, slowly but surely. But, um, you know, I just, I pay attention to marketing tactics that are used outside of the music industry because uh, we, we kind of get trapped in copying each other like, uh, oh, so-and-so did this cool thing on their album and so-and-so did a cool thing on their album. So let me try to do the same thing. But it's like, well, what if we look into other genres of music or what if we look at the tech industry, you know, just like, how do they do it? How, you know, they're giving stuff away for free. They're building email lists. They're, you know, they're, they're taking different tactics than we do. We're just like, please listen to my music. It's really great, you know? And that's cool. And I think that a lot of people make great music, but they don't know how to talk about their music. They don't have any way to connect people that are disconnected to it. Um, there's no strategy there. And I, I wish that we didn't have to have it. Like I'm all for like the music speaks for itself. Like I agree, but I don't think that most people can connect the, the dots and we have to help them if we want to grow the audience. If you don't want to, then I don't think it matters. And I don't think everybody needs to do this stuff. I just, I think it's a choice that you have to make. But anyway, so basically I do a lot of research and watch YouTube videos and read books and stuff about just like marketing tactics in general and see how like, oh, how can I apply these to myself and music and jazz and trombone. Amazing. So I'm curious if, because right now a lot of people are having a really hard time adjusting to the fact that most of their presence is on social media besides being on stage. Do you mm -hmm. think that the fact that you're so, like you have been doing this so much ahead of now, do you think that's helped you make a transition into this kind of music business occurring right now? Yeah, I would say that I'm not doing anything different really than I was before in terms of that. I just, I'm missing all the in-person experiences of like everybody else. But um, in terms of my online stuff, I find that I, I was able to kind of double down and go like, usually I post one or two videos per week. Um, I haven't been posting this week, but um, usually I went up from two to four videos a week and posting at least seven times a week on Instagram or more, or more um, just because I have extra time and that I know that the results speak for themselves in terms of growing when you post at least, when you start doubling the amount of times you're posting, you, you don't reach a lot more people. So um, even though it kind of is a little bit daunting and a little bit uh, time consuming, but uh, we, don't, we all have a little extra time right now. So for me, that's what, what I decided to do with some of my extra time was like, all right, can I, can I double the amount of content that I'm putting out? And so far I've kept up, but uh, we'll see how long before I reach a point of critical mass. Go, Chris. Your turn. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I got that. I got that rural Missouri delay. Um, <laughs> can you can you talk to us about the importance of hashtags and how uh, we can use them in our most efficient way? It's actually this is something I really struggle with. I'm either post like 35 hashtags or one. So yeah. I'm just curious about your process with use of hashtags. 
if I'm really doing a good job, and I'm not always doing a good job, like I said, but if I'm doing a good job, I try to get between 15 and 20, and I do five that are really broad. So look at when you're in Instagram and you're posting, when you start typing in a hashtag, it shows you how many posts are inside of those um, hashtags. Like, so I shoot for some like uh, in the millions, like five to seven that are in the millions, five to seven that are in the like 100,000 to 500,000 range in terms of specificity. And then like three to seven of like super narrow, like uh, maybe it's a silly thing or maybe it's just like a, a couple thousand people. If I'm doing a good job and taking the time to research it uh, when I'm doing the posting, that's what that's what I would suggest and try to do. In reality, often I use my go-tos, you know, I know certain things or tag certain accounts or whatever, but um, that's that if you want to do a really good job and research really well, that's what I would what I would do. And you can see that right when you start typing in the hashtag on Instagram. And as far as visibility goes besides hashtags, is there mm -hmm. any other advice that you could give people starting to learn social media? Most people right now are being forced to use it and they don't even know where to start. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you have to decide is what you're gonna do. Like, how much do you wanna post? Where do you wanna post? And stop trying to do everything for everyone and realize that you're only yourself and you can only do as much as you can do and like be okay with that. I tell, you know, our, my, my company outside in music, we do a lot of social media marketing for people. We have some clients that we post for them. And then other times we just do consulting and like help them post and come up with a strategy. But it was like, look, you can't be everywhere all the time. So we need to focus in on like, if you just want to focus in on Instagram or you just want to focus in on, on Facebook, like you only have so much bandwidth. So number one strategy is to figure out where you're going to post, how often you're going to post. If you can do it every day, great. If you can do it once a week, great. You know, but something somewhere and just decide what you're going to want to do and, and then um, be consistent. That's the number one thing you can do. Um, if you're looking to get onto YouTube, that's like a super important thing is being consistent, uploading at the same time every week. Um, I can tell you your channel is going to do way better if you're uploading four times a week than one time a week, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's hard to keep up on a pace like that. Um, but it, you start to develop a system for like, all right, so when I record a video, I'm not going to make a video, I'm going to make four videos, or I'm going to make five videos at one time, be that way. Um, I'm not just like setting up, tearing down and getting into this video making space over and over. So as much as you can uh, batch things together and then be organized. And then I think sometimes as musicians, we have a really hard time doing this, but trying to think of the audience first. Uh, I have a hard time figuring out exactly what this would be all the time. Like thinking like, we, we wanna share what we're doing. Like we wanna share like our music and what projects are coming out and what gigs we're playing and all what we're working on and all that stuff. But if you can find a way to somehow flip it on its head. So you're saying like, what do the, what do the, my audience want to see? Just like you guys are doing, like, who do, who are they going to want me to talk to? What kind of questions can we ask? Like you're getting from your audience exactly like that. And like trying to flip it on its head so that you can provide some kind of value to the audience for being there rather than just like, let me show you all the cool tricks I can do on my trombone. You're saying four videos a week, and so far we've been doing one with the mm -hmm. weekly ABB Bobs, and it's a it's lot great. of video editing to do just the one. I it imagine is. that with the four, you need like help, like other people to help you. 
Yeah, I do have an assistant, so I can't say that I have done it alone. I've, I was, when I was doing just one, it was usually all me. But at this point, I definitely find it valuable to invest in that help. Actually, I have two people that help me. So I, I uh, try my best to stay on top of it myself, but I can't. Amazing. So we talked a little bit when we were introducing you about how you made a, a book get ahead in 2013. And then you, in 2017, you decided to make it into like an online resource course lesson pack. So we were curious of what inspired you to start using online media and social media to start promoting education. There's two reasons. One is you can reach a lot more people online just straight up. You know, there's, you can reach people all around the world without having to spend $2,000 on a round trip ticket. Somebody just bought it yesterday from... Germany and I, like you know like it's like you know I would never probably have connected with that person very often I've got a student from Finland that's been in the virtual studio for a long time you know and like there's no way we would be, be able to connect with those people if we weren't doing the stuff online so that's number one and the second of all is uh, more of a selfish reason is that I got sick of saying the same thing over and over and over again and so um, I tried to kind of create something where people could go and they could find all the stuff that I'm going to tell them in one place. Um, you know, and that's why I wrote the book was because I was giving the same masterclass over and over, showing the same exercises because I was mostly dealing, I was mostly going to high schools and place in schools that maybe weren't like Michigan State that had like really great jazz made jazz focused majors there was like maybe places that had a jazz band with no jazz program and players just starting to play and so i kind of geared it towards that exact crowd of people which was like not super high level jazz players that are already transcribing every day and like just go more to the person that like plays trombone plays in jazz band wants to get a little bit more into improvising and stuff and so at, at any rate, I just I f assumed that you could just reach more people by do being online than offline. And at that point, I knew that probably most people were skeptical of learning online, but I had a feeling that at some point in the future that people would get more comfortable. And I still don't think people are comfortable, but I think that people are becoming more aware of its benefits now than they were before. So I still think we're a ways away from people really wanting to do it online, but um, I just figure I want to be prepared for when whenever that might come along so that's why the business is changing a lot so you kind of have like a leap ahead of what i mean at least currently what is happening now do you think that the business is going to change a lot more towards uh online media and online uh resources kind of like how you've been doing already which, which part of the business are you kind of thinking of? The educational side, the performance side? I'm hoping, I mean, the educational side. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think it's been moving that direction. I think it's going to continue to be on people's minds that uh, is the value really there in having an in-person experience when it's kind of cookie cutter. I think in music, we have a little bit of a different advantage because there's a culture created by a playing in ensembles and having concerts and one-on-one -on -one instruction that a lot of other majors and universities don't have. So I think that we have like a longer, probably a longer um, stay with higher education than maybe some other programs might or other areas or fields. Um, 
you know, I think that it can be a good way to balance out your education to have online and offline stuff. I mean, I, I, I'm not really a person to, to predict what's going to happen. I just know that I have a feeling it's going to be a powerful tool and it has been and that the tools are getting better. Uh, I think just like uh, everyone has known until somebody comes up with a way for us to have zero latency, you know, conversations and playing, it's not going to really change too much. It's going to be kind of this all workarounds to make it feel like as good as we can, but it's never going to be being in the same room and playing together. We all know that, but um, yeah, I think it's important for artists to take this time to like figure out how they can put something together online educationally that, you know, because everybody has their own way of playing and I'm not saying anything revolutionary, you know, when I'm teaching or when I put something together, it's just like, this is my way of thinking about it. Take it or leave it. You can take one thing out of here or two or, or zero. It's like everybody has a different way of explaining and you know how you as a student picked from this teacher and that teacher. And I just wanted to be one of those people that could offer one thing to some people. So hopefully people can get at least, you know, one or two things and then uh, they'll go along their way to the next person. So uh, I think it, I do think it's important for people to put something together though. For people who are just starting to get active on social media and don't know where to start, do you have mm -hmm. any advice? Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's kind of the same Sorry. answer that I said before. No, it's okay. You just froze up there for a second. Um, it's a, you just have to decide what you're going to do and provide value to your audience if you can. So rather than making it about this is what I'm doing, making it more of like a conversation about how can we do this together or like what are you working on versus like what am I working on. But obviously, there's always going to be a certain element as of like sharing what we're up to. But, um, you know, I think the most effective piece of um, advice that I got was just considering this question when people um, when people are like giving you a hard time and just being able to say like this is not for you and you have to decide who your content is for because uh, I can't tell you how many of my peers have given me a hard time about what I put out onto the internet and you know I'm just like you know what it's not for you I'm not making this to connect with you. I'm already connected to you. I can call you and we can hang out. I don't, I'm not trying to connect with you on here. I'm trying to connect with this person or that person that like is just picking up the trombone and wants to get into playing jazz. Like that's clearly not you. So, you know, just being comfortable with, with people, you know, we sometimes get stuck in a loop of like trying to um, appease our peers, you know, and, um, but if you do the same thing as everybody else, you're going to end up in the same kind of circular pattern that everybody else is into. So if you just find some people out that kind of can break you out of what your, what your circular thinking model is like, oh, this person is doing that. I should do that. So it's like, well, maybe I should do something else, you know, but um, yeah, just trying to be like, yeah, you know what? This is not for you. If somebody gives you a hard time and being like, this is for this group of people and you're deciding who you're making that content for. And I think as you know, musicians, it's pretty clear. You can have a good idea of like who something might be for. So being clear about that and just uh, start doing it and don't look back and stick to your plan, make a plan. Um, if you're not a spreadsheet person, you don't have to use a spreadsheet, but we use spreadsheets to like plan out in advance. Like here's what we're gonna post this week. Here's obviously it changes as thing real time current events happen, but 
you know, pl trying to plan things out so you don't have to think about it. I think about it as part of my job, you know, as part of my building of my career. It's the marketing part, you know. I don't think about it as like something, I don't really like to do it or I wouldn't do it if I had a choice. Like I'd rather just play music, but I can't and I don't want to like just let it slip by. So I make it a priority to make sure that I'm there in one way or another. Can you talk a little bit about, so it's a two-part question, but the first part is, who are your biggest influences as a creative entrepreneur? And then who are some of your biggest influences as a musician? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, some of my, the, the musicians, I guess, is probably easier. But uh, <laughs> as a musician, you know, I always want to be, have always wanted to strive to be somebody that could play with my heroes. So I guess that means people like Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea or some big people like that, you know, or big heroes of mine. And like, I mean, if I could ever play, like obviously our heroes like JJ and Curtis and just try to get to the level musically is like, you know, big for me. Your, you know, your guys teach Michael Deese is a big inspiration to me. And uh, all, all the people that are like the next generation above me, like James Burton and Elliot Mason and, um, Brian Keberly, Marshall Jilks, these, these guys that are just like a little bit older. And then, um, I don't know, I guess, and I, I also always have looked up to somebody like, like Winton, who has his hands in a lot of things, you know, he, he's an ad, outspoken advocate for the music, he's into the education, he appears on CBS as, you know, he, he does everything and tries to, you know, spin the music to a larger audience and doesn't just settle for the idea that jazz is in this little bubble and it has to stay here. He's an advocate for, for the whole scene, you know? And so, I don't know, I'm not sure I'll ever get to that level, but it's a, he's someone I think about in terms of like, that has this wide reach and it's certainly worth um, trying to reach, I guess. Um, and then as an entrepreneur, I guess, uh, I don't know. I guess I just try to pick up little bits and pieces from a lot of different entrepreneurs on the internet, I guess, mostly. There's not necessarily one person in particular, but one author that I really like reading is named Seth Godin. He's a great, he writes some good marketing books that are pretty um, approachable and are also, they're more approachable for musicians. He talks about it and more from a creator's point of view than from like a marketing business point of view. Um, so somebody like that, I look up to, but um, I'm trying to think of musically. You know, I, I watched the documentary, a couple, this is a couple years ago now, the Quincy Jones documentary. And I feel like he is someone that I also hope to maybe someday be like. He was involved in so many things. You know, he was a great player, big band writer. I don't know if I'll ever do the big band writing part, but you know, he, then he was like a producer and worked at, at Universal and then did all the like, I'm not sure I necessarily care about making like Michael Jackson pop hits or whatever, but I just mean like being involved in both the creative music making part of the scene and like being a, a big advocate for the music and working on the business side and just being kind of a, a person that exists on all of those fronts, I guess is just something that I aspire kind of naturally to do. Um, it wasn't like I just decided, I just kind of gravitated towards it, I guess. Amazing. Can you tell us, uh, maybe you have your book that you also have online. Can you tell us about the other online resources you have that people can sure. basically use to study with you? Yeah, I mean, there's tons and tons of like free random stuff that I post on the internet. Just 
Jasper about stuff on YouTube and Instagram, but I have kind of just like a series of books, like a, the, the get ahead is kind of like what I said, geared at that person that's like a trombonist and knows how to play the trombone a little bit, but needs a little direction of like where to go to start playing jazz. Uh, and then from there I wrote and published a warm up book, which is just like another approach, trying to find like some exercises that I think work for me. And so it's just kind of a fun thing with some play alongs and whatever. And then uh, the Living Button and then an Etude book that came out in late March, early April with some just like different approaches, things that I saw missing from my teaching repertoire. And I was like, oh, let me just, I'll just write this myself with different types of jazz language etudes. And then uh, the, the one thing I'm really focusing on right now, trying to expand as since it's summer and not teaching is uh, the virtual studio that I have, which is like basically there's kind of levels of membership that whether people want to be like super involved or kind of passively involved, but I post a lesson every week and then it's inside of like a virtual course kind of situation where there's like, at this point I've been doing this since 2017. So I think there's like almost 200 lessons inside the course. And then, so you get the, they have, they log in they get all the back catalog plus new stuff every week. And then we get together and have a studio class on zoom. Uh, every other week and so people can play and get feedback and all that stuff and they don't have to commit to like a lesson every week but what I found is that people really need a something to hold them accountable they'll like sign up for a course or something and then they'll never go through it so I found that the have once I started doing these um, virtual studio classes and people were starting to show up to them that people were actually practicing and starting to get more out of like the lessons and everything. So uh, that was that was a worthwhile uh, change. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm up to with those educational things. Nice. Um, I'm curious because you're talking about you have a lot of free resources online, how you approach monetizing resources, especially now since a bunch of people mm -hmm. are trying to do so. And it's kind of like a two part question because you also have like over 15,000 followers. So mm -hmm. I imagine that the process of getting there helped you with also being able to monetize that. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe that was second part wasn't a question, but it was like maybe something you could talk about. Sure. Um, you have to be careful about how many times you ask is, is kind of the thing. Um, I've tried to be reasonably, I try to be reasonably well mixed in terms of how much I'm asking versus saying. Sometimes I'm like asking a lot because something's happening, like a record's coming out. Uh, this Jastrobone bone boot camp thing is happening and I'm posting about it, whatever. But then the most of the time people generally say to follow like an 80, 20 rule where it's 80% content is um, so four out of five is you giving something to the audience. And then one out of five is you asking something of them. So, um, so I kind of tend to go more in a like give, 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 give for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then maybe do an ask uh, instead of constantly like four and one, four and one. But um the only, I'm not the only, but it's really, really difficult to build their following at this point without using paid media. And so learning how to use Facebook ads manager and Google ads, Google AdWords is pretty much a super important thing to either hire somebody to do for you or to do it yourself, learn how to do it because you can still get, you know, grow your audience organically, but it's really, really hard because getting past your circle of friends is really difficult because that's where it goes out to. And it only shows, even for the biggest accounts, you know, Instagram only shows it to three to 5% at the most of your followers. So if you can get it 
a good engagement that first time, then it goes out to the next 10% and the next 10%. There's like a, there's a way that it works. And so it, it's really hard to get outside of your followers. And so that's been a strategy of mine is investing, basically investing in growing my presence by having those ads running, you know, doing ads to promote posts, to promote pages, to promote things that I'm doing, to, you know, all different stuff. When I'm going on tour, I'm running like micro targeted ads to like the 30 miles around a venue and trying to like really be thoughtful about making a video where you say like, oh, hey, Denver, we're coming to Dazzle. We're going to be there on this day, whatever, and talking directly to that micro audience rather than be like, hello, my name is Nick and I'm going to go on tour and I'm going to go to here and here and here and here. So making like really targeted content. And so anyway, that, that's that been a big part of my strategy is realizing you need to be using that paid media. And as much as you can, it could be a dollar a day or you could do more, you know, you're, you just slow, slowly but steadily. And in terms of monetization, it's like only, I, th I feel like if you can get in, in the tech world, like the, the, percentage of people that convert, as they say, is like, you know, I forget exactly what the number, but I'm like, if I can get to 1%, then I'm doing pretty good. And so I had to keep on growing and growing my list and my, um, my, my email list and the presence on social to get it to the point of fact that 1% is enough people to actually be something, you know? And so it's taken a long time, like it's taken at least 10 years before it's like, I can put something together like say this jazz from on bootcamp, like I wasn't even sure that I'd be able to, how or how, if it would be able to happen. But I was like, you know, I think I can get, you know, a certain number of people and figure out a way to make it work. So kind of working backwards from we're trying to get to, but um, yeah, pay, we're figuring out paid media and your budget and what it's worth to you, balancing, um, giving versus asking. And uh, for the first and foremost thing is you have to have something to sell. So often we get stuck in a loop of our music is streaming for free and then uh, we don't have anything to sell. So you, people don't wanna buy your CD. So you gotta have something else. So people have to be again, creative with what they have and trying to find something that only you can offer. Like as anyone can offer trombone lessons, but why they still wanna study with Gina or Chris, you know? You can, there's many reasons, but you just have to let them know what those reasons are and come at it with a new, a new angle, even if it's just new to them, not new to your peers, but new to that person seeing your stuff. Love it. Um, so one thing I've always appreciated about the content that you put out and the way that you present yourself on social media is that I personally see the content that you put out as being something that's very honest and not, you know, there's like a slippery slope with monetizing and producing content where, you know, you can look at someone and then all of a sudden you think, oh, I can tell that this is not as genuine as I'd like it to be, you know? Is that something that you really think about all the time? Or is it something you just have like a philosophy about it or just any thoughts about that? Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I just always try to just be honest and direct and just say what I think. And um, I just decided... I mean, I've done other things that I feel kind of weird about, like titling a videos, like something like seven ways to play high notes or like this and that. I'm like, uh, I just feel stupid about this. Like, I don't like that. Like, I don't want a video. I'm not gonna, even though maybe like it gets more clicks, I'm like, uh, I don't care. Cause like, again, it's like, who is this for? You know, it's for, you know, people that are trying to do what we do, you know, it's like, it's a small, a small amount of people. So a couple hundred views is pretty good, you know, for jazz trombone content. I'm just, 
you know, so I try to just be, sometimes you have to play the game to try to grow your audience, but an overall, I, I definitely try to not like posture or do anything that I wouldn't tell somebody in person or, you know, I just try to just be myself, I guess. Uh, but it was definitely something that I thought of because people were like, oh, you should make content about like, whatever, the top 10 best trombone licks and blah, 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 like, you know, something like that. I'm like, yeah, but I, I don't want to do that. No, that's, that's not me. So, so yes, I've tried to, I've tried, Chris. I hope that it comes across that way, but I, I hope I can continue to be honest and straightforward. Yes, of course. So I imagine that you have done a fair amount of remote recording. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've done it on and off for a while. Um, I don't know. What are you? What are we asking about here? I mean, it's 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 like uh, I don't know. It's just like playing along with a robot a little bit. It feels like to me. Um, but I mean, it's the same. Like when you go and do an overdub session for somebody, that's what it. It just feels like that to me, and um, it feels like going in and recording horns for X Y Z project. You know, and I it actually like really inspires me to want to figure out a way to compose more stuff that I can decide exactly how I want it to be, you know, because like we write in jazz a lot, like so open-ended, like we want input from our peers and colleagues, which is what we love about playing the music. But then sometimes I'm like, wow, I really wish I could decide exactly every note that every single person was going to play. Like that would be, that's what, that's a challenge for me. You know, like I want you to play this, or this, this, I'm super orchestrated and everything like you have to do when you do one of these remote recording projects. So, um, for me, like deciding how many times the solo is going to be or something like you just like have to decide. And, um, that's been to me kind of the biggest thing about it that I've found inspiration from is like, oh, I can actually just decide these things. I don't have to just like let the band do whatever they want and then uh, just kind of be the ringleader, as it were, while you're playing the gig, but just kind of be like, no, like it should be this long and kind of trying to think more as a composer, like a little more deeply has been something that I've been thinking about, you know, classical, classical composers have been doing this forever. But for me, I've always come from a place of writing tunes, you know, and then slowly writing more compositions than just tunes. So it's been a transition. But um, yeah, I mean, I've done some it's, it's, uh, I, I like that everybody can do it. And I think that uh, it's been cool to see everybody doing so many different things. I um, kind of, I started some, I started one with uh, your guest, I was at last week or two weeks ago with Reggie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we started doing one and I have to, I have to mix it now. And I feel like I'm so bad at mixing that uh, it's very discouraging to me. Like, there's a lot of things I can do, but certain things I'm like, I have no patience to learn about these compressors right now. I want to, I like I can hear it and I'm like, no, that needs to be like this, but I don't know how to get the right plugin or I don't want to buy that plugin or whatever. So I'm, I'm battling that uh, process for myself right now with a trombone ensemble project that we did a remote, remote recording for. But, but yeah, so I guess I, that's what I've taken from is like, how can I be more thoughtful about how I organize my music to be able to be in this situation rather than like Baham or like complaining about like, oh, I can't get together and play, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, just create something within this medium instead. But a follow-up question with that too. And we talked about this with a lot of guests on the show. And I love asking this because we get so many different viewpoints because everyone's on a different side of the industry. Sure. But to you, do you think that 
this sort of new craze of remote recording, um, you know, like the homebrew big band, the homebrew small group, do you think that is going to be something that becomes more long lasting? And do you think it will have any effect on the music industry? And just any general thoughts you have about yeah. it? Uh, I, I don't know. I think people have been doing it forever in the film world and in other worlds. Maybe we're just slow to catch up as usual. You know, the jazz industry is usually so behind, at least in my experience, in terms of everything uh, that's quote unquote cutting edge. But um, uh, I don't know. I think that uh, maybe people will try to create something. I hope that they try to create some things where they realize that they need to be flexible to situations where like it can be measured it doesn't have to be totally improvised in every sense every time you know trying to cut, create some balance and like let your your creative creativity flourish regardless of the situation i think we again that's like the starving artist thing like oh there's no gigs like oh let's create a situation where we can you know create an audience to monetize eventually or whatever you know you, you have to like I said at the beginning, just be as creative with your ideas surrounding your career as you are with your practicing and composing and, and everything like that. But I don't know. I think everybody in the jazz industry wants to get back to playing together. Um, I think everyone wants to play together in, in our f side of the industry. I think in the pop rock, the other side, I think it's really almost no different because everyone was recording by themselves, tracking one at a time anyway. So uh, I do think people have an advantage that can do the mixing mastering on their own, uh, use Ableton, all that stuff. Like people that can um, engineer their own stuff definitely have an advantage right now. And uh, so if people wanna be able to get, on, get in on that game, this could be a good time to do that. I think that's for sure. A question so you have your mixing you'll make videos you have video editing then it's creating content then it's composing and it's all this stuff that you're doing how do you organize yourself or delegate those responsibilities so that you don't get like completely overwhelmed um i try to i've gone on and off with assistance for about five years um trying to think like am i the only person that can do this task right now you know does, do I need to be in on this task or is it like something somebody else could do? And so I've tried to get better and better at delegating. And so um, certain tasks just get delegated off. But I'm a person that does well by having like shorter bursts of time that are dedicated to one thing. So like, all right, this month I'm going to focus on this. And then the next month I'm going to focus on this. So I'm, um, I'm a pretty big planner, I guess, and a goal setting kind of person. And so I, I always at the beginning of the year and usually halfway through. So I did it a little early this year, but a couple of weeks ago, like a week ago or something, I just went through and reorganized my thoughts and plans for the year, the rest of the year, uh, kind of on a, like, the, like that, like on a month to month basis, because oftentimes I think like we don't give ourselves enough time to like really dig into something like I'm saying, or sometimes we try to do too much. So trying to strike that balance of like, what can I really focus on and get done in a month or like in five weeks or something? So that when you get to the end of the year, you realize you've got, gotten everything. So 
I have to plan everything out and go in deep. So if I'm focusing on say composing, I'm probably not going to do as much video content. So in the month before, I'm going to try to get ahead on video content and record a bunch of videos that can then come out. And then um, that kind of thing, like this batching kind of idea, batching of tasks, because uh, I can sit down in an hour and record four 10 minute videos about X, four different topics. And that covers me for four weeks if I'm doing one video a week. And then obviously you can do the math, but um, that's basically how I do it. And then if I'm going, like, I'm composing, then I just shut out everything else. Like, especially when I was like writing for the last record, it was like two or three months of like, I am composing. And so maybe I don't end up practicing as much because I'm composing more, but uh, that's what works for me. I don't know if that works for everyone. You know, some people like to do a little bit of everything each day. I find going deep rather than wide is better for me. Um, deep on one or two things in a, in a week or two weeks or in a month. But, um, and I'm just like, I'm a person that likes to have a lot of things going. So I kind of thrive in the chaos of it all. Love it. Um, that was a perfect segue. I was just about to ask you a little bit about your, your new album, Cast of Characters. Mm -hmm. um, I was just, I was just giving it a listen in the car and just, uh, I have lots of time to listen to the car. <laughs> and one thing I appreciate about it is, well, first of all, that uh, the titles give you a lot of an idea about what the tune should be, which I appreciate. A lot of times I think, sometimes I go into Music Wine and I get confused with a little sure. bit of like you know, guidance. It, it, it really helps me as a listener. And I also appreciate how while each track sounds different it sort of sounds like a cohesive unit of a record can you just talk a little bit about the inspiration for the record sure yeah i wanted to write something that was i've written i had done four records at that point that were all kind of just tunes you know tune-based records whatever like here's this 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 and i wanted to do something that was felt more complete to me whether or not it comes across that way it feels more complete to me as a product and so I took and used um, a lot of my composition influences have come through like the Bob Brookmeyer kind of school of uh, composition tactics, I guess, you know, in terms of the way that I think about breaking stuff down and reorganizing and stuff kind of comes from that and through Gil Evans and that. But ultimately Duke Ellington is like my main like compositional influence, but I don't know. So however you get from those uh, to now, but uh, First of all, viewing the musicians as characters like Ellington did as like trying to write for that person and not the instrument was an essential thing. And then trying to use these tactics from Gil Evans and Bob Brookmeyer and kind of putting them together into my group was the focus for me of writing it. So I used the opening motif of the record is the basically the it is the whole record. So it's reorganized in a bunch of different ways and different themes come back throughout. Um, and so I wanted to think about how to put the same information into a different context. So that's why it's all like different characters of people that you meet in your life. And I really wanted people to think like, who is that person for me? And how does the memories or thoughts about that person influence the way that I hear the music? I don't know if it comes across that way. And I don't think that it necessarily matters if people know that that was the intention, but um, that was the thought behind it, you know, it was just like, does intention matter in art? I don't know. That's a whole separate conversation, I suppose. But um, 
so that was kind of where I came from with it. And then I wrote a bunch of pieces that were kind of about archetypes of people and kind of narrowed them down to this. And then I also wanted it to work as a continuous um, piece. So I wrote these kind of shorter pieces that kind of connect the longer pieces together. And I still think it's a little tune-ish, but um, it was a step along the road for me of trying to write something a little bit longer. And so that, that was kind of the reasoning behind moving towards that and trying to put out just something different. And I had done every record and it was like a picture of me on the cover and I just got sick of it and I just wanted to do something else. So I had an illustrator, you draw up these characters and just try to fill the art and make it bright and bold because everything in jazz tends to be cool and dark, you know, and it's like smoky room and everything. I'm almost just like, eh, let's do something else. And so it kind of looks like a circus a little bit, but uh, what are you gonna do? So I just, I figure, Try a lot of things because uh, you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, like this, and I kind of knew it from the beginning, but this record didn't do as well on the radio as other records because other records I made specifically knowing, all right, I need to put a track on here that can be for the radio. It needs to be this long, has to have no bass solos, no drum solos, has to be swinging, blah, 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 blah. And that's cool. And I did it and it worked. And my records did pretty well on the radio before, but this one like never got that high up because the pieces are long and there's different solos and it's like a, and the whole thing. And, but I kind of went into it knowing that that was going to be the case. So it was kind of good to see that my, uh, my guess was correct, that it was going to be a little affected by that. But anyway, so just knowing that all those decisions you make when you're making records will kind of, you know, it does affect how it's perceived in the marketplace and how much you can do with it in the long run. But that wasn't the question. <laughs> No, that was great. I just, I just wanted to hear some more, hear you talk about the record so much. That's, that's... Yeah, well, th thanks for asking. It's, uh, I am, I, I'm very proud of it. Uh, I thought that it was a, a good culmina culmination of the band after five records. So I was, I'm happy with how it turned out. You founded Outside in Music, I guess. Yeah, company it's a record label. A record label, yeah. Um, what got you into producing? Well, I never thought in jazz, I always thought at the beginning that in jazz, you didn't need a producer. Uh, and I was like, oh, you don't need that. You can just play the tunes and then figure it out later. And so that was my attitude at the beginning. And then I started being on some sessions that had producers that were really thoughtful. And I realized how much of a load off it was to have someone else there. And so when I made that here and now record that you guys played at the beginning, um, that was the first time I used a producer in my own session and I used Ryan Truesdell, who's a orchestrator, arranger, big band leader. And he was so helpful. I was like, I will never make a small group record again without a producer. And so then I realized that just having that experience in the studio and having being a trusted pair of ears, that's going to be honest and straightforward. You'd have to have a certain type of like, like just honesty, like, no, you didn't get that. Let's do that again. You can't just be the hype man. You know, you can't just be like, yeah, 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 that was killing. Yeah, it was killing. Oh, yeah, 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 it was killing. Like, that's not a good producer. A good producer is going to be someone that tells you the truth, you know, the good and the bad. So um, I don't know. I just felt like I had a few friends that had asked, and so I started getting into it. Um, but it allows you to be involved in more projects and, like, start to hear different things and start to see the bigger picture. Um, I started producing out of necessity. I was doing, like, stuff for the label. We've done a few like showcase kind of label showcase sessions. And so running those and figuring out how to manage large amounts of people in and out and all of that kind of logistical stuff. 
don't know. It just kind of was something that uh, I could just naturally kind of do, I guess. So I tried to harness those powers for good. And uh, so I kind of got into producing a few things and I just wanting to allow artists to feel more free. You know, I know that feeling where like, was that good? Did we get it? Did we get it? And while you're playing, you know, like you get that feeling, but when you have somebody you trust and you can be like, man, did we get that? And they could be like, yeah, yeah, you got it. You got two great takes. Like, just, just move on. And you're like, all right, cool. But like, if you don't have that person you trust, you're like, no, 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 let's do it again. Let's do it again. And you end up wasting time and energy doing extra takes, playing, overdubbing this part and that part when the producer would have been, we'll just fly that one note in from somewhere else. Like, don't worry about it. You know, so just having um, somebody with that experience can be super helpful in terms of lowering the anxiety level, for sure. Especially, you know, we are dealing with, with outside of music with a lot of people that are uh, my age or younger. So we're not like on our 700th album, you know, we're like in the first 10, maybe first five, even one, the first one, you know, and so uh, there can be a lot of anxiety there. So, um, yeah, it's just something, again, like you're talking about Quincy Jones, like he does that, he was a producer and I was like, oh, I kind of want to know what that's about. And so something I've always been vaguely, vaguely interested in. So just trying to get as aware, as much uh, breadth to my experience as I can. Um, would you say that your experience as a producer has changed how you record your own records? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I know what to ask of the producer. I know what's like, hey, I need you to do this thing for me. Like I can ask for specific help when I need it. Uh, and then the people that have produced for me, they appreciate when I'm like super, I can be super organized. So they don't have to worry about that part. They can just worry about the like, you know, logistics of the day or, you know, making sure that the sounds are correct and, you know, the takes are right and keeping notes throughout the day, you know, and when I, it, seeing other great producers and how they keep notes and like follow along with scores and like mark the scores up or just like little tactics, like each take is a different pen color. And so you can tell like which, which take the, you've circled this note because you missed it. I was like, oh, that's ingenious. Like, why didn't I just think to take three pens to the session? But uh, just different things like that. So I don't know, you observe and you get better and then it helps you do it for yourself. And then you can be like, man, that really sucked when this person said this during the session. You know, because the producer's job is also to manage the personalities of the people. Like if the producer gets in a fight with the drummer or something, that's no good, man. You're going to ruin the vibe of the whole session. So that I found that you got to have a producer, like, I'm not going to name any names, but I've been in sessions where there's a producer there who's not doing anything. And then the band leader's getting upset because the producer isn't doing anything. And then it just makes for a weird vibe. So um, hire a good producer or don't hire one at all. <laughs> Do you have any advice for people who are uh, about to record their first records? Yeah, don't spend all your money on the first record because the first record is never going to be the only record. It's just the first record. It's one of many. And so do as much PR as you can right from the beginning, but don't spend all your money. And I'll say it again. Don't spend all your money. If you find ways to cut corners, find ways to save money, ask a friend to mix at whatever it has to be, get it out because as soon as you get the first one out, it's time to plan for the second one. So whatever you need to do to get that first ball rolling and then keep rolling. When I started doing my first record, I started a Kickstarter campaign and it was during my last semester of grad school. And so I told all of my 
family and friends, like I don't want anything for graduation, whatever you're gonna give me for graduation, put towards this Kickstarter campaign because it's gonna be for um, this first record and I need to do it and I have to get it out there. Um, and then I always reinvested every single penny from the first record to the second, the second to the third, the third to the fourth and, uh, on, and onwards. Because I, I always think about it like a startup cost for your career, you know, as a musician, that's our product, that's our business, that's our music. And if you were going to open a restaurant, you might need $100,000 down just to get it open. That's, that's us, like our first couple records, whether it's 20 grand, 50 grand, whatever it is, like that's our down payment, you know? So for me, I just looked at it like that and I was going to make five records and my goal was to do five records in five years, but it took uh, 2013 to 2020. So it's whatever, eight years uh, to get five. But, you know, I tried to like push, 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 push myself to keep writing. And so anyone that's putting out a record every year, it's like pretty incredible that they can like get the finances and the music together in that amount of time. Maybe they have a record label that pays for stuff, but as a, you know, an independent person and all of that, it's like, it's a lot of work, but uh, I don't know. So that's my advice to, for people is like, do the best you can, but don't get tr tripped up in thinking like your first record is gonna be something big. Like maybe it will, maybe, but like most first records just kind of are crickets. So if you can just focus, just know the reality and know that like, if you can get a few things, you're like on the right path, like a few reviews and a little bit of radio, like, and then get back to work to the next record because it's like that, it's never one thing, you know? It's always that build over time. The, the, you, people see the one thing like, oh, Kamazi Washington, boom. But it's like, he's been making records for years. It's like, it wasn't like he just like appeared out of nowhere. He was on the scene forever before that and just happened to be this one thing that launched him into more of a public consciousness. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. But so just, that's the thing. It's like, it's one step and just keep on, keep on going and don't, don't stop after the first record. As soon as you get it out, start, you gotta start the next one because the media cycle is fast. And they will forget about you if you don't put something else out. And then it's like, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so, you know? Um, so I, it's like, yeah, if you can get something out at least once a year, whether it's like a digital project or something where you can, your name can be being in front of the industry people, that's like an important part of it. Just like being around, just like you got to be on the scene, you know, <laughs> as a player, you got to be on the scene in the industry side too. So you would say that uh, the same way that we talk about social media consistency and constantly showing up, you're saying kind of with records, it's the same way uh, mm -hmm. to continuously keep producing as opposed to having like one standalone record. Yeah, because it's like we, we sometimes we're just like too precious about it. You know, we're like, this is my musical pinnacle. And this is it's like, OK, for now, but don't you think in 10 years you're going to feel differently? Probably. <laughs> So not to get too caught up in it. And just like you said, it's consistency over time. You know, it's, it's not, it's not blowing up one record. You know, it's only one in a million. Not, I don't know what the actual number would be, but somebody whose first record does better than Miles, you know, nobody's done better than Miles Davis, but you know what I mean? Like the first record is really like blowing up. Nobody's, nobody in jazz is really like that. Maybe Joey Alexander would be an example, but like, what other examples do we have of like first records that really like end up huge, even with like people that win the Monk competition and put out a record like that first record is like pretty big, but it's like, mm, it doesn't really make as much noise as maybe you think it's going to. Some people, and I'm not saying nobody, but that's not the most of us, you know? So 
just keep keep on pushing. Amazing. So sort of pivoting into a, a slightly different thing. Part of the reason why I'm so excited about having you on the show is that you teach at University of North Texas. I'm wearing my UNT Jazz, Jazz Trombone Day shirt today. Uh, but University of North Texas, I think I can say has the most a number of bass trombonists playing in a jazz ensemble. You think probably. that's a safe thing to say? Uh, probably, yeah. We have the, probably more big bands than most places. Yeah, so I was just curious to hear you talk about uh, just a little bit about what it's like working with that many bass trombonists that are playing in big band and that kind of thing. Um, well, a lot of them are classical majors. Um, so not all of them have a super deep passion for jazz, but we have one, two, we have two that are jazz bass trombone majors at this point. Um, they applied and then they were like, oh, can I major in jazz bass trombone? And I said, and so basically I always just say, well, your degree plan is gonna say jazz trombone, but you can play bass trombone if that's okay with you. So that's how I, that's how I work it out and not let anybody know that we've technically added this as like a focus, but yeah, no, actually there's three. There's three of them that now that are like, wanna improvise on bass trombone. And a lot of it is from watching people like you two play your butts off and improvise and not just be like a low note person, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, we, I don't know. I, it's, I do exactly what this show is called. I make them play bebop down an octave. That's, what, that's, like, that's yes. what our lessons are. I'm just like, oh, I don't have a confirmation, but just play down an octave. Or like, I had one, one student that was working on um, Joy Spring, Clifford Brown, the head in the first, I guess, actually, he ended up doing the whole thing. So like down an octave for two, sometimes two octaves, you know, depending, but uh, I, I don't know. I'm personally, I am not that great of a bass trombonist. I can get by in a doubling situation, but I would not call myself a bass trombonist. So uh, I try to leave the, you know, technique I, I show I, i'm like hey go listen to this person go check out that person go get the advice from people that that really really know how to play space trombone and then i can tell you about like how that sounds or how it feels and we can work on vocabulary and stuff like that um but sometimes you know a lot of stuff that we have to work on with students at unt in particular is there's a little bit of a tendency for people to play loud um as you may have heard before, but uh, trying to get them to be a little more sensitive is my goal, and uh, to play with a little more ensemble awareness, not just like, you know, plowing through the band, because a lot of the bands have um, two bass trombones, because that's kind of like the Stan Kenton thing, and so um, trying to get them to calm down a little bit sometimes is a, a challenge, but, uh, you know, you get playing some stuff, I can understand why you would want to play it loud, but uh, just developing that sensitivity and musicality is important to me as a, as a musician, you know? So uh, I, I basically, I just kind of uh, approach them like anyone else and try to get them to use their best musical awareness and not just be a, a uh, jock, for lack of a better word. I think we all need a little talking down in the low note department sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, it's all good. <laughs> So that actually brings up one of the questions that we have here, and it's about specific about jazz education. So for the longest mm -hmm. time, trombone was kind of left behind um, in regards to what the expectations were of that instrument. Um, sure. 
in like comparison to the other instruments and i feel like bass trombone is kind of at that point now where it's just starting to climb where the expectations are starting to can you um talk a little bit about how you're maneuvering that at unt sure um i hold my students to a high level because that's how what my teachers did to me um wycliffe gordon was my first jazz teacher and he had a high expectation, like you were going to get this together. Like there wasn't really a room for excuses. And then, um, you know, Wycliffe and then Steve Teray was my, my teacher at Juilliard. And he just, we talked about playing the trombone all the time. And so that's what we talk about. I talk about with my students is that you play the trombone first and then you f learn about how to create different styles with articulation and feel but trombone is trombone. So, you know, we're playing Bach cello suites, we're playing Rochu, we're playing, um, I don't know, any standard rep, you know, at UNT, the students have to do two years of classical study, the undergrads, uh, which was the same for me at Eastman. That's what I, I had to do. And even though sometimes in the moment you feel like it's pretty grueling and you want to get to playing whatever, two fives and tunes and stuff, you like, it's really important to like have a solid foundation on a brass instrument. I just looked to somebody you know, many people, but like somebody like Marshall Jilks is somebody who's like, can play the crap out of the classical stuff and like be totally amazing in the jazz world as well. So it's like, wow, well, if he can do that, um, I can, I can like try to work on this Rochu, I think for a couple of weeks, you know, try to get it a little bit better. So um, for me, that's kind of my approach um, with the musicians is that we have to play the instrument first and um, learn the history. For me, I'm kind of, a person that goes to like the middle first of well the middle i don't know what the middle is but i i call it the middle of like jj curtis slide boom go there and then we work outwards like learn the history backwards check out jack t garden check out <clears throat> trauma young check out dickie wells like all the cats and then go forward to and check out everybody that's happening now and all the in between so that's my philosophy is like go to the the meat, that's what I think of it as, like the meat of the vocabulary first, and then you can go do whatever you want after that. You know, I try not to, I try not to put my uh, influences on all of the students, but I think it's inevitable that you kind of like push them on people. But um, I try to let students also balance it out with like, well, what are, you, what are you listening to? What do you want to be doing? You know, what's your goals? Like, who do you want to be playing with? We can't only play J.J. Johnson every day, even though I want to, you know, like, uh, so what are you working on? You know, who do you want to transcribe? What tunes, what vocabulary do you want to do and stuff? But so try to keep a good balance of all that. Um, but anyway, to get back to the actual question is I just start with a high expectation and I don't, I don't let it, I don't let it go. I just kind of say, you know, like, maybe you should record yourself because I don't think it's, I, I don't think what I'm hearing you would like me to hear, you know. I think if you uh, just, you know, focus on the fundamentals a little more and as soon as they do, it automatically gets better, you know, and it's like night and day, as soon as like everybody just needs to have their little click moment where it's like, oh, if I just learn how to play the trombone better, then it doesn't matter because I can play anything. <laughs> it's like a kind of a little unlock and everybody has to get there because there's like this, well, I want to play jazz, I don't want to play classical. Uh, this like fake battle between the two, at least from what I've experienced. But um, anyway, that's in a nutshell, a very long answer to your question. I was going to ask something, but you actually, with the fake classical jazz battle, can you talk about that a little bit more, what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, 
I feel like this is just my experience. I'm only going to talk from my opinion. I don't know if it's fact, but from what I've experienced in my life, there seems to be a divide between people that are like, I play jazz and I play classical. And if we, and a lot of times people get roped into like, I'm a jazz person because I don't want to play in an orchestra. And so then the jazz area gets filled up with all these people that are just not wanting to be classical players, basically. And they could be interested in a whole range of types of music, but they end up over into the jazz path. But I, I think ultimately the fundamentals are the same and you have to have play with good sound, good time, clarity, intonation, articulation, all the basics, you guys know, you know, you have to do it, whether you're playing in a Broadway pit or you're playing in a, a wind ensemble or you're playing in an orchestra or a big band. It's all the same set of skills, but with slightly different style and slightly different articulation and sound concept, perhaps, if you're playing different instruments or different parts, you know, just having this kind of broad awareness of styles. Because, I mean, you can't be a work, working freelance musician and not play broad different styles, you know, I, at least for me, that was my experience. So I'm like, man, you have to have ensemble awareness. You have to be able to play this part of the Broadway show that's a swing tune. And then this part right after it, that's like hardcore, like brass chorale, like super soft and sweet. You have to do both. Like it's never gonna go away. So a lot of times there's sometimes this discussion like jazz people have a bad sound or they don't have play clean or they play sloppy and loud and they can't play dynamics. And it's like, so all those things I try to direct head on and be like, no, sound first, articulation, cleanliness. If you wanna play sloppy after that and play like whatever, I don't know, Kid Ori, go for it. But for me, we're gonna play clean first and then you can do whatever you want. Um, just to have the ability. And so it always comes from a place of awareness and choice rather than inability to play it in a clean and clear way, just for my money, you know, it's just like I try to get students to, if they're gonna doodle tongue, for example, a hot topic, if you're gonna doodle tongue, you gotta doodle tongue clearly. It can't just be, you know, for me, just for me, you know, I don't find value in a, in a muddy, non-clear uh, way of articulating. But, um, so that's what I mean by jazz versus classical is there's sometimes like this, sound thing and i've walked in on presentations before where they're like well jazz players tend to play with a smaller less good sound i'm like what are you talking about like jj play with a huge sound like get out of here you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> some of them yeah sure didn't have great sounds that's true but not for the most part and not the ones we look up to you know mm -hmm. steve trey is working on a sound all the time wycliffe gordon can play with the more resonant sound than almost anyone else i've ever heard he can play louder than an entire orchestra by himself with no microphone just because his sound is so resonant it's not that I mean, he plays loud, but like, it's like, it's, there's something more there, you know, it's not, sorry, I'm getting worked up about this. <laughs> the question that I was going to ask before that, and you kind of touched on it a little bit is, so you're very versatile. You're very much into education, not just in person at, at your university, but also in media. Uh, mm -hmm. You're a, very good with media marketing in general, and then you're a phenomenal trombonist. Uh, could you talk? Tell us a little bit about what you think makes a well-rounded musician. That is a very insightful question. Um, what do I think makes a well-rounded musician? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think it's expanded from at least even when I was in college, which wasn't that long ago, 2005, 2009, I graduated from, from Eastman. And there was just the burgeoning then of like all the arts leadership stuff and music business being more integrated into the core curriculum then. And, um, 
I think that you have to be well ver a well-rounded musician now. At, at that point, it meant like playing all styles and being able to play in like what we were just talking about, like a Broadway show and then a salsa gig and then a jazz gig and then a big band gig and then your own band and then blah, 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 blah. And um, that's just like to work, you know, just to work and make money as a muse, excuse me, as a musician. But I think now I agree with you and that it's like you have to have a multi-dimensional uh, brand, I suppose, is the way to put it, even though that's kind of a, you know, non-artistic word, but uh, it is a brand and it's you and what you're doing and you have to think about what that means and what it's associated with and what you want to be associated with, like in terms of online stuff. And it's a lot, a lot trickier, but you have to, so a well-rounded musician to me would be somebody that can balance both the virtual and the physical worlds um, with class and care and uh, at a high level, as, as high of a level as they can in that moment. Like as we're always gonna be learning just about our presence and marketing just as we are on the instrument and as an artist. So um, it's just like another set of skills, you know, and I, I wish that it was the case that we didn't have to do that and we could just focus on music, but um, until there's another time, point in history where the economics work out so that people can make money off of us again, because there's that, that's basically what it is. The, nobody can make money off of jazz artists, so they're not, they aren't working for jazz artists. They're working for, you know, sports people or influencers from Instagram or whatever. They're being their agents rather than booking agents because, you know, even a jazz club's only paying a thousand, two thousand bucks for a band. So just if the economics change, maybe it'll change again, but it's somebody that can navigate all those things and take that big picture awareness um, and, and see, try to follow and emulate the paths of people that are doing what they want to do and um, just be honest and normal and cool and just, you know, not be a drag. We know that you've, you've played in the New York City scene for a while, and now you're sort of living and teaching in Texas. Mm -hmm. We were just curious how you compare the two scenes. Obviously, New York City is New York City, and Texas is Texas, but I'm just curious of what, how they compare for you. What's positives and negatives about both, or just your thoughts? Um, it's, it's a tough question, actually, for me to answer, because my world in Texas circulates around UNT and the school. Um, and my, in my own presence online, because when I, you know, everything we do in life, you know, decisions that we make, you know, you have certain reasons and the reasoning for me was to focus more on that stuff. And so I kind of let everything go that wasn't those things. So if it wasn't a gig, I wanted to play in New York or a tour or teaching at school, I kind of let it go. So I haven't been playing in the scene in Texas very much because I've been focused on school and focused on my own stuff. Um, and it was just an intentional decision that I made just because I wanted to focus on my stuff and not get bogged down by trying to like play $100 gigs or $50 gigs. Um, but for what I can tell, my students play a lot around in Dallas. There's a lot of, um, well, not right now, but there was a lot of corporate work, like a lot of big events and stuff and conventions and stuff that happen in Dallas. So there'd be a lot of party bands that would work and stuff like that. And the usual kind of theater work 
for sure. And a lot of in, in Denton where the school is, there's a good amount of venues for the students to like put projects together and play, you know, for tips or whatever. But um, I mean, nothing compares to New York's jazz scene. I mean, if you want to play jazz seriously on a high level and you're interested in it, I always tell the students, you have to go to New York. Whether you want to go for a one year or 10 years or whatever, you got to go and just check it out. See what it's like, feel what it's like to play with New York drummers that really swing and really play. And um, I mean, you can get that from, you know, this person or that person that's scattered around, but to really like be in it for a little while and see if it's something that you want to do. Cause you know, it's, it's a different thing to put everything on the line and be there and, you know, so to me, it's, there's not really a comparison. It's just like, you know, this is a place, the school has a great scene, a great culture, but Dallas is not a jazz hub by any means. There's no dedicated like place that I would say like, oh yeah, this place is like the Blue Note or something. There's a place, there's a few places that have jazz music, but it's mostly more corporate work and church work. There's a lot of church work and stuff like that. So you can be a musician here and there's a lot of students. So uh, meaning high school students. So um, you can work. It seems like people stick around the area just to teach high school students and they can, because all of the high schools bring in teachers and they work like all the time. Like they're crazy working with all the teaching and students and stuff. Um, but in terms of the jazz scene, it's based, it's to me so far, it seems like there's more jazz happening in Houston uh, and Austin. And, uh, but there is a lot of corporate work and stuff like that, just getting into this biz the business of working in the mu music industry and scene is happening uh, in Dallas for sure. Amazing. Um, you mentioned that you still, you know, you're talking about how you sort of tapered out the amount of gigs that you play and you said you play gigs that you want to in New York. So how do you remain relevant and, you know, a part of the New York scene while you're still living in Texas? Well, it's pretty easy right now because there's nobody playing any gigs anywhere. <laughs> I'm missing out just as much as everybody else, but I don't know. I was back every week or every other week playing, playing gigs. Right. That's amazing. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I just know that, you know, I went to school too and I have student loans and I got to pay those off and the longevity of my career is more important than um, like the immediate, like, oh my God, am I going to miss this? Am I going to miss that? Yes, I'm going to miss some things, but I try, it makes me have to prioritize, which is important and makes me figure out what I need to do in order to do what I want to be doing in the long term, you know, I want to just hang out in New York and not, and just play, but um, that's not, it's not reality. You know, there's, there's other factors at play. And when I was 22, I didn't realize that, you know, but that's okay. It's just part of growing up, I guess. I just want to be a little kid, but got to grow up sometime or something like that. I like I like uh, I like how you phrase that thinking about the longevity of the career versus like the immediate explosion of the career. That's really cool. Yeah, I just you know I want to. It's a I've always I've always said this that the jazz is a game of attrition. If you can last to the end, you'll be a star. <laughs> you know the old because the older guys and and girl and women in the scene are like oh they're like the big deal. Like if you can just like keep going, you'll make it, man. Like, obviously, you have to be great, but. Uh, there is a certain amount of people that just give up, you know, so if you can, if you can be, 
dedicated to what we're doing. And I think, you know, it will pay dividends in the long run, even though it's like feels sometimes like you're making a, a side road, you know, or like going in a different direction than you expected. Crazy stuff happens, man. You never know what's going to, what's going to derail or inspire or send you in a new path. So um, I just try to be open to what opportunities come along. And I always say, you know, this is the decision that I'm making for now, you know, and you can always change course. So not to get too worried. It's just the same thing with the first record, you know, you can't get too caught up in it or else you won't be um, able to keep going. At least that's how it seems to me. So I have one question kind of circling back to the social media. We talked a lot about social media, you know, and putting content out, keeping consistent or whatever. But I imagine that it's, or, well, I mean, I'm realizing now because of how much social media I have to take care of, uh, that it's hard to balance the media presence with actually showing up, uh, mm. not just with gigs and presenting, but actually on the instrument because it's so easy on video or on media to... I mean, fake it, frankly. Um, sure. Do you have any advice or tips or any comment on that? I mean, you have to hold yourself to a standard. I, I mean, ultimately, if you're not holding yourself to that standard, you know, it's gonna, people will find out, you know, I, I don't think there's any, it, social media, all this stuff, videos, blah, blah, blah. Like it's only speeding up people getting to know you and what you're about. And if you're all about the glitz, then they're going to find out you're all about the, you know, the flash and whatever. So I guess I'm, I just hold my, try to hold myself to the same standard that I always have in terms of playing. And I know when it's not happening and I, uh, and it's just, just as I'm sure you both know, you know, when you're not playing as well as you want to and you, you know, and I'll be the first to admit since, since I graduated from school, it's been a roller coaster of like having time to practice, not having time to practice, practicing, like it goes like up for me, like up and down and up and down, and up and down. And I'm just like so grateful of the time that I put in when I was an undergrad, when I practiced six to eight hours a day, lock myself in the room. Like, and I tell my students now, I'm like, this is the time I'm telling you, if you're not doing it, you're never going to get it time again. I mean, maybe, you know, situations like now people have more time, but um, it's been up and down. So, I mean, you just have to figure out what works for you. You try to make sure you're being as efficient as possible with your practice time. Um, it's definitely more difficult for people like you, Gina, who are doing doubling and playing all these different instruments and trying to keep up with all that. I mean, um, but just to, for me, it's fundamentals, 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 fundamentals. And uh, as, if I can play clean and clear, then usually when I get to a gig, I can at least articulate the ideas that are in my brain. So uh, it's just trying to like raise the floor all the time so that you never, um, so that you're not, maybe it's not your best day, but your worst day is better than it used to be, if that makes sense. And then I have one more question before we wrap up. Uh, can you tell us again about the online resources that people can look up to find your courses, your, uh, what is it, the Jazz Boot Camp and- Sure. Yeah, um, everything is on my website, nickfinzermusic.com, and there's a page on there that just says, I don't know, there's a, it's kind of separated. There's virtual studio and courses and all that stuff. If you wanna go over there and check it out. But um, we have, I have standalone courses that are just like pay for it once and you go and learn a bunch of stuff, either about the get, get ahead stuff or there's an etude book and a warm up thing. Just trying to make a complete, 
kind of set of stuff. And then if you're interested to get like more feedback and stuff, you can check out the virtual studio where there's new lessons every week and we do studio classes and all that. Um, so it's kind of a choose your level of involvement kind of situation. But if you want to just find fun things to practice, you can just go to Instagram and look through my Instagram. And there's, I've been trying to do better lately about posting the sheet music also on Instagram. So you can just screenshot it or do whatever you want to do and, uh, and check it out. So that there's uh, all tiers free to uh, being subscribed. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for thinking of me. Of course. Very, very. And of course, everybody knows we flashed all his resources and we're having a special 8B Bebop episode on Friday where we're talking to Rodney Whitaker. So if anybody's interested in oh, going wow. to that, that's going to be super fun. It's going to be talking about uh, just jazz history, which he is such a great pedagogue of jazz history and um, we're really excited to do that. So for anybody who's interested in seeing like an extra different 8 BB Bop episode in a day that you're not all that used to, swing by. And again, thank you it's so be much a lot for of your fun. time. Yeah, it's going to be super Yes, thank fun. you really so much. excited about it. Yes, yeah. All right, bye guys. Okay, bye. bye Great to talk to you.